Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Alex Foltz. I'm the Connections Minister here at Redbrush. Uh, glad to be bringing the message here this morning as Ben has just returned from a vacation. Uh, and uh, from the looks of it, if you saw him this morning, we, we joke that he's still in vacation mode. If you see him, he's wearing a festive uh, shirt for the beach. Uh, not great for Clay County, but uh, worked for the beach. So if you see Ben, uh, if you haven't met him yet, you'll know exactly who he is based on uh, what he's wearing today. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to fill in for him, give him a break. Ron was in last week and uh, glad to be continuing on in this series in 2 Timothy. Uh, I believe it's like week eight. Uh, we are wrapping up. Next week will be our final week in the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, for some of you, you're probably thinking it's about time, uh, something new. So uh, after that, I want to make you aware, we'll be going through, as Ben mentioned a few weeks ago, the book of Habakkuk, everyone's favorite book of the Old Testament. Uh, And we've got this, we'll have these available starting next week, but we've got a study guide for you. Uh, As we go through the book of Habakkuk, it's got a reading plan in here, and uh, there's there's questions to help you in your study each week, and then prayer prompts for you, because uh, as we'll see going through the book of Habakkuk, uh, it's a lot about prayer and about Habakkuk's prayers uh, to God. So we wanted to center this study around that. So look for these next week. They'll be out uh, next week and then following weeks after as we start that series. Uh, But wanted to make you aware of that um, ahead of time. So as I said, we are uh, just a few verses away from wrapping up the book of 2 Timothy. We're entering the final stretch, these final words from Paul in what we believe is his final letter that he wrote um, in his ministry. So I thought that uh, since we're winding down and and we started this, uh, I think the beginning or or first few weeks of May, uh, it's been a while. So let's kind of recap some of what Paul has has said, just kind of a broad overview uh, of what Paul is talking about as he writes this to Timothy. Uh, To kind of give us context, remember that we said that Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. And this is the second time he's been in prison in Rome. Uh, Not the second time he's been in prison in general, but second time in Rome. And Timothy is his apprentice uh, who is ministering in the town of Ephesus. And though Paul had found himself in hard situations, he didn't want Timothy to lose his passion for ministry. And so he begins the letter by reminding Timothy of the faith that was handed down to him uh, by his grandmother and his mother. And and he reminds him uh, that God, he says this in in chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. And he tells Timothy to hold on to the truth of the gospel over all things that are to come in this world. Uh, Paul then goes on uh, later on in that chapter to give the metaphor of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer, uh, and how the hard work that that we will endure as we partake in ministry uh, brings about fruit and victory in Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul keeps reminding Timothy of the opposition that he would face as he preaches the gospel. He tells Timothy, you know what, you're going to be tempted uh, in in lots of different ways. You're going to have these temptations uh, to to go and use worldly means to to make your message heard. 
Uh, you're going to want to argue with people. Uh, when they try and silence you, you're going to want to quarrel with them. You're going to have these fights and arguments. Uh, you know, whenever you get pushback, you're going to be tempted to kind of soften up. Well, you know, I, that's not exactly how I meant it. But he's saying don't do, don't do that. He's saying you can't soften your message. You can't uh, use these worldly means of arguing to get your message across. Instead, he, he tells him to cleanse himself of these worldly things and instead seek godly things. And then Paul really begins to emphasize the issues that would face him in the coming days. Uh, we read this a few weeks ago, and this is in chapter 3. He says, know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. And then Paul hits him with this, verse, uh, verse 12. It says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's warned Timothy about the ways that he would be tempted to, to mirror the tactics of the world. He's warned Timothy about the, the things that are to come, the hard times that would come in the final days, the way that people's behaviors would shift and change. And then he says, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. Not the most encouraging message when it's possibly the final time you will get to hear from your mentor. Uh, this is the kind of message that, uh, that can turn Tigger into Eeyore. Uh, if you're a fan of Winnie the Pooh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you read this and you're just like, what? Are you sure? Like, this is not what I, I wanted to, to sign up for. But see, Paul wasn't concerned with giving Timothy any sort of false hope. Paul wanted Timothy, and, and just as he wants us today, to have a realistic outlook, to be prepared for what is to come, to know what is ahead of us. You see, our job as Christians is not to live an easy, comfortable life. Nowhere in this book does it say, if you do this and you do that, Life will be good and easy. It says God gives us the strength to handle what is ahead. It says that God will not give us anything more than he can handle through us. But it does not say life will be easy. Life will be comfortable. Come unto me and I will give you an easy life. Go unto the whole world and live comfortably. No, it says go and make disciples. Our purpose here on earth is to make disciples for Jesus. Here at Red Brush, we say it this way. Know Jesus and make Jesus known. We want you first to personally have a relationship with Jesus. We want you to know him 
And it's only when you know him and you have that relationship with him that you are able to go out into the world and make an impact and make a difference to help others know Jesus. And last week, we left off with this uh, encouragement in regards to making disciples. It says, all scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man and woman, sorry ladies, you're not off the hook, the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that everything that we have in here, in in God's word, is inspired by God and it's profitable for us. In what way? In teaching, in rebuking, in correcting, in training in righteousness. This is what equips us to do the work that God is calling us to do, to make disciples. So with that snapshot of the first three chapters of 2 Timothy uh, in mind, Christian life will be hard. People will dislike what we have to say. Uh, You will be persecuted and rejected, but we have the scriptures to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and train us. Paul begins his final plea to Timothy. We're going to pick up in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in this kingdom. So Paul just lays it all out for us here. His words impress on us the importance of the message that he is giving to Timothy. He says, I charge you before God and Christ Jesus. See, given everything that he's discussed up until now, the difficulties that are to come, Paul is charging Timothy. This isn't a request. It's not a negotiation. This is a spiritual parental figure in Timothy's life, a mentoring figure, an authority in Timothy's life with an imperative. This is what must be done. This is your charge. And the word that Paul uses, uh, we translate it as charge. It's a legal term. When Paul says, I solemnly charge you, uh, it's a word that was used in that time when someone was testifying about someone else. It's what someone would do in a courtroom setting. And Paul is saying, the judge that I stand before today as I give you this charge, as I testify this truth to you, it's not a random judge at the courthouse. It's not... It just it's not a Supreme Court judge. It's, it's not even Judge Judy. This is the judge over all. I stand before God and Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. That's a pretty big charge. So after all this, this buildup, Paul telling him how important this message is, this message that will change the trajectory of Timothy's life. He's saying, okay, what is it? Let's let's hear it. And this is what Paul says in verse two. Preach the word. 
That's it. Timothy's probably reading this thinking, preach the word. I'm a minister at a church. That's kind of what I do. Be like telling me to take a breath, breathe oxygen. I I do that regularly. I, I... There's got to be something more, Paul. What am I missing? But Paul's words remain direct and to the point. Preach the word. He goes on, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. There's no stopping, Timothy. This isn't what you do on Sunday morning. This isn't just what In fact, you do, Timothy. It's not what Ben does and Ron does and I do. This is what we all do. We preach the word. And then we preach the word some more. And afterward, we preach the word. We are always prepared and ready to tell people about Jesus. This is our life in Christ. As we seek to make disciples, we are always ready to preach the word. For those of you that know me, uh, you know that I'm a a sports fan. Uh, Football, not my favorite sport, uh, but I do enjoy some some football. Uh, In 2016, uh, the New England Patriots, they were in the midst of of just an amazing run as a football team. Uh, they, had, they were going to their fourth Super Bowl that year in nine years. They were the number one seed in the playoffs. Uh, they went 14 wins and two losses that year. Uh, their star quarterback, Tom Brady, was suspended for the first four games, and that's when they lost one of those games. Uh, so they were on a roll, and they get to the Super Bowl. They're facing the Atlanta Falcons. If you watch that game, you already remember what happened. They find themselves in the middle of the third quarter of Super Bowl 51, down 28 to 3. Down 25 points. A game in which they would end up coming back and winning in overtime by scoring 31 unanswered points. Midway through the third quarter, the Falcons had 28 points and they ended the game with 28 points. A few days later, uh, as, as championship teams are accustomed to do, they're, they're having their parade through Boston. Uh, everyone's celebrating this huge achievement. Tens of thousands of people come out. This is Bill Belichick's fifth title as a coach, Tom Brady's fifth title as a quarterback. At the end of the parade, uh, everyone will kind of, the parade will kind of lead to one area. There's a stage set. Uh, people all gather around that place and, uh, the owner comes and speaks to the crowd, the, many of the players, and uh, the coach, of course, will speak. They're, they're thanking the, the team, or thanking the fans for their support, uh, and of course, promising another championship is coming next year. Now, Bill Belichick is a stoic coach. He, he's a man of few words. Uh, he's famous at his, uh, at his, pre-game press conferences or even his post-game press conferences to not really say much. Uh, Win or lose, no matter what happens, he's really known for saying, uh, we're on to next week. He doesn't really want to talk about what just happens. We're already focusing on the next game. 
Now at the end of the season, uh, what do you focus on? You know, for many of the players, they've, they've put in 20 grueling games of physical just beating. They're exhausted. They're ready for a break. And Bill Belichick grabs the mic, holding the championship trophy in his hand, and he begins to chant, no days off, no days off. No one else is cheering this. You've got a crowd of tens of thousands of people who are like, I just took a day off to be here. The players are thinking, I'm, I'm ready for like a month off. Forget a day, a month. And yet, Bill Belichick, as a championship coach, understood that when you want to win at the highest level, you stop at nothing. That when the stakes are this high, there's no off-season. That it's back to work. And in case we've forgotten, Paul has already told us what the stakes are for us. He tells us why we are to be ready in season and out of season. No days off. It's because God is going to judge the living and the dead. And according to the scriptures, that judgment is not going to go anywhere near the way we want it to. Because of our sin, all of humanity both living and dead, will be judged guilty and deserving of death. That's a sobering reality that we have to face. Yet we preach Christ crucified, the antidote to our death sentence. We are to preach the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us, Jesus as the only one who can save us from this reality. But we're also to preach the word of God, which he reminds us is God-breathed. It's useful for training, for teaching, for rebuking, for equipping us. Paul continues on in this verse. He says, be, be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and encourage those same things that he described the word of God. He said we should do those things with great patience and teaching. See, it's crucial for us to remember those things together. It's okay for us to rebuke. It's okay for us to correct. It's okay for us to encourage. But if we, we don't do them with patience and teaching we're missing out. You see, if, if we're known only as someone who will rebuke, tell people what's wrong, wh where they've messed up, but we do it without patience and teaching, uh, we're nothing more than harsh critics who point out the fault of others, but don't point them to the truth that fixes the foundational issue. Sadly, Many Christians are known this way today simply as, as what we're against and not what we're for. Uh, but Paul tells him, do this with patience and teaching. Help instruct people. Don't just point out their faults. 
It's okay to be encouraging on the flip side. But if all we do is encourage people in their good but never help correct their bad, we're allowing them to continue on in their sin. And if it's done hastily, we're tempted to leave someone behind at the first sight of things getting difficult or that they've fallen short. See, we have to have patience in walking alongside people. These things must all be done in balance, in tandem. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience in teaching. Paul goes on this verse three and four. He says, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from, the, from hearing the truth, will turn aside to myths. See, for Paul, everything rests on this idea of sound doctrine, of sound teaching. He told Timothy in chapter 1, verse 13, to hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that Paul had given him. He reminded him before that of the strong faith that was passed down through his mother and grandmother. In in chapter 3, he told him to continue what he has learned and firmly believed. You see, this call to preach the word is naturally followed by a warning that people will want to abandon sound doctrine. Because people uh, will not want to hear what God's word truthfully has to say. God's word and our sinful nature are naturally at odds with one another. Our sinful nature wants to repel us away from it. That's uncomfortable. I don't like what that says. I don't want to read that. Hebrews 4 says this, the word of God is living and effective sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as to separate soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts of inten- and intentions of the heart. Then listen to this part. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We will give an account for the life that we've lived, the things that we've done. And when we open the word of God and it reveals within us our sinful nature, we should be repulsed, not by the word of God, but by what we see within ourselves. But instead, so many today, they want to change the word of God in order to suit their desires. And this is what Paul's warning against. Sadly, this is what people today uh, are trying to do. They're trying to change the word of God uh, to suit their own desires. Uh, One of the ways in in which this is happening is is within a a branch uh, of Christianity called progressive Christianity. Um, I I found this on their, their website Just listen to, this is what they say their core values are. 
Maybe. There it is. These are the core values of progressive Christianity from their website. By calling ourselves progressive Christians, we mean that we are Christians who, one, believe that following the way and teachings of Jesus can lead to experiencing sacredness, wholeness, and unity in all life, even as we recognize that the Spirit moves in beneficial ways in many faith traditions. Number two, we seek community that is inclusive of all people, honoring differences in theological perspectives, age, race, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, class or ability. Number three, we strive for peace and justice among all people, knowing that behaving with compassion and selfless love towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. Number four, we embrace the insights of contemporary science and strive to protect the earth and ensure its integrity and sustainability. Okay, uh, that's, we should, we should take care of the earth. That's, that's in the Bible. Um, number five, we commit to a path of lifelong learning. Okay, again. But then it says, believing there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. Progressive Christianity denies the atonement of Jesus, uh, the sacrificial atonement, that, that his blood shed on the cross is what cleanses us and makes us innocent before God. If you couldn't tell from the last one, it's better to question than, than deal in absolutes. They, they deny the authority of Scripture. Their definition of sin is loose. They do not believe in the deity of Jesus or the virgin birth or resurrection. Instead, they affirm that the gospel is about social justice and critical race theory instead of about making sinners right before God. They believe in universalism or pluralism, the idea that all paths lead to the same God. And they believe in, uh, in not the deity of Jesus, but instead in the cosmic Christ. And what that means is that, that he's just an example that helps us find the divine within us. You see, what this comes down to is foregoing the authority of Scripture. And when we do that, we become the authority over Scripture. Instead of opening the Word of God and having our sin exposed, feeling the weight of that sin and seeking God to change us, what happens is people open their Bible, they find something they don't like, and they find ways to change it so that it affirms what they want to hear. This is what Paul says. They'll multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. What happens then is you see people getting on social media, making videos on TikTok, explaining how something in the Bible is problematic, it's outdated, it needs to be re-understood, and then they call it deconstructing. 
Listen, if we read something in the Bible that we think is problematic, that's called conviction. That's called the Holy Spirit exposing something in our lives that we need to change, not something in the Bible that needs to change. If something in our life doesn't align with God's word, we need to do the pro- go through the process of re- self-reflection, of seeking God, and renewing that part of our life. I have a friend on Facebook named Dave Jenkins, and, and he shared this quote this week. It says, When people do away with the authority of the Bible, the only authority left is themselves and their interpretation of their authority. This is why every Christian is to stand on the word to declare the glories of Christ, contend for the faith, and make disciples of Christ. I read that this week as I was studying and preparing for this message. as like, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. Our authority rests on the word. It is through the word that we find uh, the glory of Christ, that we contend for the faith, and that we make disciples. Not on our interpretation, not on what we want it to say, not on what culture wishes it said, but on the word of God. Paul continues on in, in verse 5. It says, As for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there's two things that we need to understand. Uh, we need to be aware of what is to come. All right? We can't be blindsided by the trials that we're going to face. Paul has been clear about that in this letter to Timothy. It's clear to us. Jesus said you will face temptations, you will face trials of many kinds in this world, but do not fear for I have overcome the world. And James tells us that we should find it a source of joy when we endure hardships. See, this is why Paul doesn't sugarcoat things with Timothy in this, in this letter. He doesn't want him to, to be blindsided by the difficulties that are to come. He says, endure those hardships, okay? They are coming. And the second thing is that we have to have our foundation on the word of God. Paul keeps hammering this idea home. Exercise self-control, preach the word, have sound doctrine, He keeps pointing Timothy back to the foundation of the word of God. And when our foundation is secure, we're prepared to deal with the hardships that are to come. We're able to fulfill our ministry because we remember that it is God that we answer to for what we're called to. Finishing out this section, Paul says this. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. For the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have, reserved, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. 
not only to me, but to all of those who have loved his appearing. Paul begins to wrap up this, this letter to Timothy by pointing to the reality of things. Paul knew that his time on earth was, was coming to a close. He knows uh, the, the death sentence that, that is likely to be given to him at any moment as he's imprisoned in Rome. This is the final letter of Timothy uh, receiving the torch that Paul is passing to him. And from the moment that he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus to this moment that Paul finds himself in, he has given his life fully to the ministry of the gospel. Now, Paul isn't bragging here. He's not self-promoting. He's giving Timothy a vision of something greater that is to come on the other side of the hardships that he will endure. Earlier this week, uh, my wife told me that she really wanted to see this movie. I had heard a little bit about it, uh, but not a whole lot. Uh, I didn't really know what it was about. It's called The Sound of Freedom. Uh, maybe you've heard about it now. Uh, there was a reason why I hadn't heard much about it. Uh, they don't want people talking about it. Uh, but let me tell you, this movie is a must-see. Absolutely must-see. It's, it's in Effingham. Uh, you have to see this. It's based on the true story of Tim Ballard. Uh, Tim Ballard formed, uh, he, he was working uh, at a time for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, he was, uh, around 2006, he, he was helping uh, find those dealing in uh, child pornography, pedophiles, things like that. Uh, and in 2006, they, they made it to where uh, Federal agents could actually go overseas, and, and if there was a, if there was an American in a foreign country dealing in this sort of thing, they could extradite them back to America and have them tried as if those crimes occurred on U.S. soil. So that's where uh, Tim Ballard finds himself, uh, and and I don't want to give away the plot of the movie uh, because I really do think you should you should see it, but. Tim ends up forming this organization called Operation Underground Railroad. And what he, he finds is he, he begins to see that, that yes, we're, we're getting the end source by, by catching these, these pedophiles. But what if we could actually rescue the children? What if we could make a difference in that way? So he forms Operation Underground Railroad. He he helps take down human trafficking rings, uh, rescuing people, not just children, all people out of sex slavery. Uh, and this is not just something that he was doing across the world. This is something that was happening in America. Still happens in America. Started that organization in 2013. Um, and in the last 10 years, this organization has aided in over 4,000 operations over 400 per year. They've resulted in the arrest of over 6,500 men and women, and they've rescued 6,000 women and children out of trafficking. And all of this happened because of the religious conviction that, that Tim Ballard had. He was willing to put his life on the line to pursue this. He was in dangerous positions, and not only that, 
I was listening to an interview with him and they kind of explained this a little in the movie. He was, I think, 12 weeks away from his pension with the federal government vesting. And in order to start this organization, he had to walk away from that. Uh, he said that uh, he had a financial advisor when he was making this decision, sit him down and say, uh, I ran the numbers. This is what you're giving up. And it was over the course of his life, once his pension vested, it was something like $12 million. But he walked away from it. And not only that, he walked away from it. Uh, he had six kids at home and his wife was the one encouraging him to do it. In fact, she said to him, um, he, he said he could see two paths. Uh, one was scary. There was, there was spiders and cobwebs all over, and the other was sunny. You know, just the typical thing, you, you scary path, bright and easy path. He said that this is the one, his pension was over here. It looked good. He, life could be really good this way. And then she said, think about the children that, that we have. Think about our own kids. That if they were going through this. Now close your eyes and imagine those paths again. And, and imagine someday you will stand before the creator and give an account for what you've done. Now think about which path is more beneficial. And of course he said that path that's going to help people, not myself. And his wife ended up telling him, I don't want to have to stand before God and say that we could have done something, but we didn't. And then she left him. He was overseas at that time on a mission that he was told to come home from. Uh, he put everything that he had on the line. Everything that, that was there, his financial security, his family, his life, because the mission that he had was too important. So I want to ask you this as we wrap up. What would this world look like if each of us lived fully in our God-given mission to make disciples? What would Louisville look like? What would Clay County look like if we lived in a way that said no days off? I'm prepared in season and out of season to preach the word. Who in your family could be reached? Whose life trajectory, whose eternity could you change by living on mission? You see, the stakes are far too high for us to not take this seriously. Just as Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season to preach the word. Father God, help us to be bold in this calling that you've placed on our lives. This calling to preach the word, to make disciples, to be prepared in season 
and out of season. It's for all of us. The call of Christians everywhere to make disciples. God, give us opportunities to have conversations with those that we know. Give us the words to say. Help us to have the consistency and desire to remain in your word, not only to deepen our own faith and and relationship with you, but also to be equipped for every good work that you've called us to. God, we are your humble servants, ready to be used for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen.